Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, found on page 882 of your Pew Bible. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then we go to Psalm 42, one through verses 1 and 2 on page 515. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And then we flip back to verse 6 in Matthew, or Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pete. Now, if you haven't heard about this latest Netflix series called Love is Blind, it's a social experiment on whether people can find true love simply based on emotional connection. Now, if you're looking to add this to your viewing list, it comes with a slightly trashy TV warning, so heads up. They gathered 30 contestants who decided that they would enter into this experiment and date one another in these pods. That's an overhead view. And so you can imagine them as like confessional booths, but very, very comfortable, where you could hear one another but you can't, couldn't see the other person. So the, the whole goal of the show is that you would propose to one another if you felt comfortable and based only upon emotional connection. And in 30 days' time, you were expected to go to the altar and decide whether you would marry this person for the rest of your life based simply upon emotional connection. You don't get to see what the person looks like. You don't get to see what kind of build they have, how tall they are, or what color skin they have. Would they find true love simply based on emotional connection? Now, it makes for great TV. What draws viewers in is identifying the lengths to which people will go to seek happiness. These contestants were seeking and craving relationship. They were craving intimacy. They were craving someone to share their life with that they were willing to take time off of work. One contestant even said, I don't even know if, know if I have a, a, a job to go back to if I go through with the show. They put their, they're craving it so much that they put their emotional and relational history on display for the world to see in the hopes of finding true love. Would they find happiness or would they be rejected? Would they find the satisfaction for their relational cravings? Or would, or would they find that gap widen even more? You can find out if you like. While their cravings were relational, I think we might be able to identify cravings for which we'll do anything for. Sometimes it's a burger. But other times, we crave professional success. So we're willing to sacrifice sleep 
and health and relationships for it. Or maybe we're, we crave excitement and adventure, so we allocate most of our budget towards travel. Or maybe we crave attention and recognition. So we put an online version of ourselves for others to see that's disconnected from who we really are. Sometimes, though, our cravings are well-intentioned. We might crave justice for the oppressed. And so we're willing to sacrifice for the cause of the marginalized. Others, we might crave a better world. So we choose jobs that align with this priority rather than jobs that pay us the most. Behind all these cravings is this longing for something better, a longing to be satisfied. In the Beatitudes, Jesus makes his fourth pronouncement that we will look at today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now remember, as we've been saying in the series, Jesus is speaking these Beatitudes to people who have already responded to his call to follow him. And those in God's kingdom, he's saying, in these Beatitudes are happy, they're blessed, they're to be celebrated because they crave righteousness and find themselves satisfied. So we're going to unpack this statement and how it plays out in our lives by asking three questions that arise from this pronouncement. One, are you craving? Two, are you righteous? Three, are you satisfied? Craving, righteousness, satisfaction. You know, in our first world lifestyle, I don't know if most of us ever experienced this deep craving that, and hunger and thirst that Jesus articulates here. Most of us, if we miss a meal, we feel hungry. If we're exercising and it's a hot day and we forget to bring water, then we experience thirst. And then we go look for a convenience store. We find a restaurant. But if we can't find that, all we need to do is pull out our phones and order it and it comes to you. And even if we're writing, running tight on funds, we often have access to help. But what does it really mean to crave in the way that Jesus is describing here? He uses words of hunger and thirst to describe a craving that expresses a dire need. This kind of craving says, I'm going to die if this craving is not filled. How often do we feel like that? I tried to think of that for myself. I thought maybe I could almost come close to that when I had the stomach flu several years ago. And you experience, what can I say online or that's recorded, that an unintended expression of bodily fluids. For 12 times over several hours, it was miserable. I've, I had felt like I had nothing left to give. My body kept saying, give more, Andrew, give more, Andrew. I felt faint. I felt like things weren't connecting in my brain. I was craving relief. And I was like, kill me now. Take me, Jesus. Fortunately, this happened in Canada. And because of public health care. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't even have to think about whether I could afford to go to the hospital. Julie called 911. Ambulance came, took me to the hospital. I got plugged into IV. Do doctors uh, prescribed some medication. And after a day's work, I went back home. My craving for relief was satisfied. And even better, I never even saw a bill. Holding on, uh, maybe another example would be uh, holding on to our, our two-year-old foster son the first night that he arrived in our home. You see, over a period of four months, he had lost his mother when she disappeared. And then he lost his father when he was arrested for murder. And then he lost his grandma 
and grandpa because they realized that they couldn't sustain care of him and his brother. And so that late summer night, I still, it's like burned in my memory. I'm laying on the couch. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning. He's on my, st- uh, on my chest, and he's crying. He's a tense ball of anxiety, crying out and crying out for hours for grandma. His sweaty head and his tears making my shirt completely wet. I think that's desperate craving. Craving relief. Craving comfort. Craving relationship. But here Jesus is saying that there is one crucial thing that we are wired to crave for, that when we get it, we will find ourselves satisfied. And it's righteousness. We'll get to what righteousness is in just a moment. I want to spend more time on this idea of craving. I want you to know, what does Jesus not say about what we are to crave? He doesn't say you're blessed if you hunger and thirst for a good life. Or you're hunger and thirst for happiness. He doesn't even say hunger and thirst for God's blessing. He doesn't say hunger and thirst for awards and recognition. You see, those things don't really fill us. Even though that's what most of the world thinks we are craving. Happiness and blessing and the good life is not something that we seek for directly. It is the result of seeking something else. Happiness can never be the goal. Righteousness is. And that's the critical error that most of us make. We put happiness before righteousness, and it always ends up in misery at some point. And that's the message of Scripture throughout. The truly happy are those who seek to be righteous, not happiness, not happy. Those who put happiness in place of righteousness find that they will never get it in the long run. Now, we likely know or have come to know people who are suffering from health conditions, very painful ones. Maybe we can think of some in our community here. And we crave for them, and we crave for ourselves when we're the ones who experience that, to be relieved of pain. No one likes to suffer pain, and so we seek medical assistance. But if you go to the doctor for your pain, and the doctor simply is concerned about relieving your pain, then this person is probably not the best doctor. See, you see, pain is this incredible gift provided by nature to, pay, to cause us to pay attention to what causes pain. The ultimate solution for pain is, not, is to treat the disease, not just to treat the pain. So our craving for relief doesn't always have to be f- from the physical things, though. It shows up when we ex- seek experiences of God, or in spirituality. Or maybe we find ourselves marginalized, and so we seek spaces where we can, quote, I can be accepted for who I really am. You know, this craving for relief, this craving for acceptance is understandable. But often these cravings are motivated by seeking happiness, not righteousness. And these experiences and spaces that God provides our gifts to us. But what we are to covet, what we are to seek, what we are to hunger for is righteousness. What Jesus is saying here is we are blessed if we crave the right thing. So the question becomes, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What exactly is righteousness? Now the word righteous is foreign to outside religious vocabulary, except for maybe this 90s pop culture reference of two figures named Bill and Ted, or 
and their most righteous adventure, dude. The word can be intimidating. In common language, the closest idea that we have to righteousness may be the term self-righteous, which is typically perceived as an undesirable trait, right? Who here says, I strive to be a self-righteous person? Someone who is self-righteous always believes that they are morally superior than others. And no one wants to be that kind of person. But thankfully, Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus' teaching is challenging the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes who are listening in, actually, when Jesus says this statement. In fact, it's just a few verses later in verse 20 when he says, For I tell you, to the disciples who are listening, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is throwing shade to the religious leaders of his time. So, is Jesus, Jesus is saying, you're going to be blessed if you crave righteousness. And that righteousness that you crave, unless it's greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to make it. What exactly is this kind of righteousness? The Old Testament Bible scholar Gerhard von Rad describes how righteousness is not about living up to legal principles and standards. Righteousness is about living faithfully to the terms of of a relationship. You hear that? Righteousness is not about following the right rules. Righteousness is about faithfully living to the terms of a relationship. A righteous marriage partner lives up to the terms of the marriage covenant. A righteous citizen lives up to the expectations of social order in their country. A righteous business lives up to the terms of a contract they have with their customer or with their suppliers. To be righteous is to live faithfully to the terms of a relationship. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationships. And we get a sense of this early on in scripture when God describes right relationships in the Ten Commandments. In light of this understanding of righteousness, the Ten Commandments, then, are not meant to be read as a list of rules to stay in right relationship with God. They're not meant to be description of rules. They're the description of what people look like who live faithfully in relationship with the living God. You hear that? The difference? What, is, what do the Ten Commandments begin with? The Ten Commandments begin with this statement. I am the Lord your God, you are my people. That's what precedes the ten, list of Ten Commandments. That, what, what is that? That's a description of a relationship. That's just a description of partnership. And therefore, in this partnership, with you as my people, and God as God, this is how then you will live. You're not going to have any other gods between us. You're going to honor your parents. You're not going to take other people's lives. You're going to know when to stop working. You're going to not, you won't desire what someone else has, whether it's their property or whether it's their spouse. See how it changes the orientation when we understand righteousness as living faithfully to the terms of a relationship? Disobedience to God is not so much because of a code of ethics that has been broken, but because of a relationship of trust that has been violated. Let's translate this to contemporary times. 
Lauren Euler is a columnist for Vice News. I think this is the first time I've quoted something from Vice News in a sermon. But she's reflecting on whether sleeping in the same bed with somebody other than your partner without having sex is considered, having, is considered cheating on your partner. Are platonic sleepovers cheating? That's what she's asking. And she's not writing this from any position of religious conviction. She's just articulating the mental gymnastics that people make to determine whether a particular action has betrayed a relationship. She writes the following. The platonic sleepover is what you do when you want to have sex with someone but can't for one reason or another, but usually because one or both of you would be cheating on a person or on your convictions. It allows you to be naughty while claiming that you are not being naughty. See what she's saying? She's describing righteousness even though she's not using that vocabulary. So what makes a relationship righteous? Just because it's legal, does it make it righteous? Just because it's culturally accepted, does it make it righteous? Just because it's consensual, not harmful, and not coercive, is that righteous? In this, in this instance, two people are sleeping in the same bed together without having sex, and they're consenting, they're not uh, coercing, and they're not harming one another, but does it make it a righteous action? The righteousness we see described in Scripture is about relational wholeness, a relational integrity that encompasses all of our lives. What Jesus is really saying here is, blessed are those who crave life-encompassing relational wholeness. Blessed are you when you crave life-encompassing relational wholeness. So what kind of life-encompassing relational wholeness is Jesus inviting us to crave? You know, there are four kinds of relationships that we find described in Scripture. There's a relationship that we have with the created order, the world around us, relationship with other people, relationship with ourselves, and the relationship with the living God. And it's this last relationship that we find in Scripture is the crucial relationship that informs all other relationships. It's what David expresses in Psalm 42, as Zimone read for us. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? It's what early church father Augustine expresses poetically when he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. What David is saying, David and Augustine are saying, what Scripture says is that we are all wired deeply for connection with the living God. And the wholeness of that relationship is what informs and infects all, affects all other relationships. With created order, from the original creation account, we find that our welfare and the welfare of the world we live in is tied to God's call to us to steward it well. In relating to others, when we relate rightly to others, when we act justly towards others, that's a measure and a reflection of our relationship with God. How about with ourselves? How we view ourselves, how we view our brokenness is important. And like the, we've been reminded in these first three Beatitudes so far, when we come to understand who God is, when we stand before God and realize 
God's holiness, we recognize the poverty of our spirit. We mourn the broken and self-oriented parts of our lives. And we become meek in recognizing how we cannot be overly impressed with ourselves. We're not rightly related to our whole being apart from God's gracious work. And that leads us to this living God, our relationship with God. We are wired for this deep relationship with God that informs all other relationships that we have. And when we crave this relationship with the living God, we find that our, relation, our other cravings arise. We realize, that a, we realize a, a, a desire to be free from self in all of its horrible manifestations. We find we become meek, the preceding beatitude, when we find freedom from self, from self-concern, from pride, from self-protection, from sensitivity, from imagining that people are always against us. We find that we crave a holy life marked with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We crave to walk in union with God. We crave to live in right relationship with others. We crave to see the oppressed set free. And that's what happens when our relationship with God is made whole. And that key, the key to this is that righteousness isn't achieved by making a strong effort. It's simply a gift to be received. It's a given righteousness, not an achieved righteousness. Blessed, the blessed people of God don't achieve righteousness, but they simply hunger and thirst for it. When we recognize that right relationship with God is a gift, then we find ourselves to be satisfied. This is the promise for those who respond to Jesus' invitation to life in his kingdom. You're happy. You're blessed. You're celebrated when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because you will be given what you truly desire. You will never fill yourself with righteousness. You will never find a happy life apart from God. It's a gift that's simply meant to be received. For all of our intense cravings, seekers do not make ourselves righteous. The source of righteousness comes only from God. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God. There is nothing that we can do to sufficiently fill our cravings by our efforts. And that's really the core problem of humanity. It's what the Bible calls sin. We try to make ourselves right. We try to make ourselves better. We try to fill our cravings to relate rightly and faithfully to the world around us. We try to justify our self-worth and our identities. We try to right injustice selves by our own efforts rather than by trusting in the living God. The word translated satisfied or filled is written in the future passive indicative tense for you grammar nerds. Future tense, passive voice, indicative mood. It means passive in a sense that it's not something you get. I mean, you don't, you don't achieve it. It's something that's done to you. And it's played out on several levels. It will happen, you'll be filled at once. First in justification, as, as um, 
Crystal reminded us in the reading from Romans, by Christ and his righteousness, the barrier of sin and guilt between us and God, whatever separates us from God, is removed. When we confess our sin and put our trust on the cross that Jesus died upon for our sin, then we have been declared forgiven. What God sees, even though we still may sin in our lives, when we put ourselves in Christ, what God sees is the righteousness of Christ. And we are filled with righteousness immediately, what theologians called the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're filled immediately with Christ's righteousness, but we're also filled continuously through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continues to deliver us and show us parts of our lives that we are not trusting God with. Parts of our lives that would be called sin. And as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're we're promised that we will get it. The Holy Spirit will come and change our hearts and change our lives. And we'll be able to resist the temptations of Satan and he will flee from us. We get righteousness immediately. We get righteousness continuously and we get righteousness ultimately when Jesus returns. We will be completely, made completely and perfect, complete and perfect, when all who are in Christ and all who belong to him stand in the presence of God for eternity. We will be presented faultless and blameless, without a single blemish, without wrinkle. We will be presented as new humans with a perfect and glorified body. The beauty of this promise One who has entered the kingdom of God through Jesus is always hungry and is always thirsty, yet we're always filled. It's this paradox. The more we are filled, the more we hunger and thirst. And that's the blessing of this life in Christ. It's what the Apostle John says at the beginning of his gospel. Out of his fullness, that's Christ's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. There's this image of grace upon grace upon grace. The more we realize we have grace, the more we realize how broken we are, and the more we realize how much God changes us, and the more we realize how much we are made whole, and then we realize His grace, and it continues over and over again. On and on. We realize we're perfect, yet we're not perfect. We're hungry and thirsty, but yet we're always filled. We're longing for more, yet we never have enough. Because it is so glorious and so wondrous, we are fully satisfied by God. And yet, as Apostle Paul says, we have the supreme desire to know him, and that's Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is what we are invited to crave as God's people, and we find that we are filled as you come here today, what have you been craving? What might those cravings be pointing to the craving that makes the biggest difference? This craving of living faithfully in relationship with the living God. Jesus, we're hungry, we're thirsty. We thank you for that, even though sometimes it's very painful. And we bring our hunger and thirst before you, recognizing, as you said in this beatitude,
that what we're really hungering for and thirsting for is the righteousness of God. We long to live faithfully in relationship with you because we know that is what makes the biggest difference in this world. So as we acknowledge our hunger, may we acknowledge it's really craving you. And we ask that you would fill us. If that's what you're doing for the very first time, we can say, Jesus, come. Fill me and satisfy me in this way where it's grace upon grace. Trust you and not myself. Prayed something like that today. We'd love to talk to you after the service. For all of us here, we want to live in this life of grace upon grace upon grace. That's what truly satisfies us. So help us, God, by the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask these things.